Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Oleggi. Our guest today is Dr. Junipa Moguena, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University in New York City. She just launched her first book titled Magema Fuse, The Making of a Kolwa Intellectual, which is about Magema Magwasa Fuse, the first Zulu speaker to publish a book in the language. Dr. Mugwena is currently a visiting scholar at the University of Cape Town, and we are speaking to her today via Skype. Hey, welcome, Tonipa. Thank you, thank you. I'm really happy to be doing this interview. Well, congratulations on, on your wonderful new book, uh, and it's subtitled The Making of a Kolwa Intellectual, and you show Fuse and other Kolwa or Christian converts to be intermediaries and also translators back to Africans. And uh, though he was involved in some writings in English, such as the famous 1875 petition, Fuse wrote chiefly in Isizulu, of course, uh, in the black press, from his early journalism in newspapers such as Inkanyiso and in Pepe, and later in the famous Ilana. What then was Fuse's role in this early black press, and, and how did he build a readership and response? Mm, that's a really good question, because um, I guess one of the main ideas behind me writing about Fuse is just, number one, to update um, the sort of history of the black press because I'm, there isn't really much in terms of what's written in South Africa about the sort of origins of, of black writing and black journalism. Um, so I think there was that idea sort of um, inspiring my reading of Fuse. But also I think Fuse is unique in the sense that he was involved in the black press in a physical sense because he was trained as a printer. So he sort of almost understood the technical creation of, of text. Um, and so the really intriguing question was almost how does one sort of shift from being a technician into being an intellectual? So how does he convert this technical skill of being um, a printer into an intellectual skill of sort of being an interlocutor and, and discussing history and genealogy and, 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 and war, conflict, colonialism, etc., etc. Um, so I think, yeah, he was involved in the black press in ways that went beyond just writing and beyond just journalism, also beyond just um, the circulation of the newspaper because he almost had this physical understanding of how a newspaper or any text is produced. And here the question of translation is an interesting one to me. I'm currently working with some other scholars on a, uh, an edited book on the history of Abantu Batu, uh, which was a contemporary newspaper in five languages. And these intriguing questions of who is translating what for whom keep coming up. And, of course, later on, Fuse turns uh, or transforms some of his journalistic pieces into this marvellous book and questions of translation of brown and black and other things come up. Um, mm. What do you think about this whole question of translation? Um, and of course he then had to mediate back 
to white colonial society. As I mentioned, he was involved in these early petitions in the 1870s. Um, so what sort of a life do you think it was, uh, this, this uh, intermediary uh, life, switching back uh, from one culture, one language to another? Um, I think really uh, for Fuse, when it came to questions of um, creating knowledge, I think he was clearly uh, of the view that Zulu was the language to use. So in some ways, I don't want to say he was anti-English because he wasn't opposed to the English language as such. He wasn't opposed to its use. But I think he wanted to limit the use of the English language in favor of uh, promoting and establishing the Zulu language as a language for intellectual engagement. So in that sense, he wasn't a translator in that direct sort of, he wasn't translating necessarily from English to Zulu or vice versa. But I think what he was doing was translating what he perceived to be the English or British work, sort of um, intellectual culture into the Zulu language. So in some ways what he was doing was he was pointing to his contemporaries that there is an intellectual culture that exists in the English language and that really the task of Zulu speakers is to create the same for their own language. So in that way he, he was translating not in the linguistic sense, sort of translating one language to another, but he was translating cultures and specifically the intellectual culture which had nurtured him when he uh, was a student of Colenso's and I think that's his main um, understanding of translation. I think he wasn't concerned as much with the idea of sort of translating physical books. I mean, the Bible comes in as an object or as a text that is debated in terms of translation, but if I had to sort of pick a larger, I guess, issue of, of language and, and, and the transference between English and Zulu or from Zulu to English, Mangi Mafuzu was more of a translator of the larger sort of intellectual culture right. that he saw working amongst the English-speaking people that he knew. Yeah, this is, this is Peter here, Kloniba. Um, it seems to me that the names uh, that appear throughout the text of Abanto Banyana, his famous book, and also in his other histories, um, are very important here as a, an example of how he's mediating uh, culture and, and the process of naming is very important to him. It seems to me that the prologue of Abanto Banyana, I have the translation here, uh, starts off with his little vignette about his own name, right? That he, he was born uh, Manawami, he becomes Skelemu, uh, and then Colenzo names him uh, Magema. And, mm -hmm. and can you tell us more about the way in which names, and particularly uh, Zulu names, uh, are relevant to this discussion of a man who's straddling between the traditional and the modern, the urban and the rural, and, and the Christian and the indigenous? Uh, yeah, I think for Fuse it was important in some ways to introduce himself almost as an act of sort of etiquette or an acknowledgement of the indigenous uh, a quorum because you know it's I mean it's still very much part of the culture that when people introduce themselves there is almost this exchange of, of familial 
clan names, you know, so a person will introduce themselves and the person will say, ah, Nyambos or Shang, and other if they're Mutiles, etc., etc. So there is a sense in which he was revealing himself to still be part of that culture by saying, you know, this is who I am, this is my genealogy, uh, this is where I come from, so that people could get a sense of uh, his non-rootlessness, so that people could sense that he had roots, so he wasn't just a nobody who was coming out of nowhere. Um, so I think he tries to situate himself in that indigenous... Uh, it's almost a language game, if one can put it that way, because it's something that people do both very, and they take it very seriously, but it's also a way of, of acknowledging things like seniority, because people who are junior will tend to call their seniors after their clan names, etc., etc. But as you see in that prologue, as soon as he's done that, he almost moves immediately towards also introducing himself as a reader of Ilang Alasenatad. So he sort of almost shifts from talking about his own genealogy uh, and the way in which he acquired Makema as a name towards sort of talking about, okay, I also belong to this community of readers who read Ilang Alasenatad. And so you also get the sense there that he's saying, okay, you know my clan, but you, you also know me in another guise as a writer and as a contributor. Uh, to Ilang Masenatal. So you get the sense that he is also giving the readers um, an introduction to his writerly self, this untranslatable, unnameable, almost persona that he has as, as a writer. Uh, so yeah, I think his particular transformations as well are important in understanding his shifts in, in personhood. Because when he talks about himself as Manawan, he almost talks in this prophetic language that when he was a small child, he almost knew that he wasn't going to grow up at home. And so that's Manawami, this small child who has this premonition that he's going somewhere. And when he expresses these premonitions, then he becomes skilling. And in the book, I spent some time sort of explaining that that name, the fact that it's Afrikaans, so it's a Zulu transliteration of the Afrikaans with skelem, shows that already the, the conversation or the dialogue between the languages was already happening. So the people were beginning to borrow from the Afrikaans. And the fact was that white people were already a reality in, in Matal. And so the fact that his name, his nickname, Skelem, almost begins to signify um, the colonial context that he is growing up in. And so when he becomes Makema and sort of Kalenzo makes him not choose a biblical name for his Christian self, because now Makema almost represents the Christian self that he becomes after meeting Colenzo. You also get the sense, again, that um, he is acquiring a new identity and he's acquiring a new self, but that self still has elements of the old, which is what I think Colenzo was trying to preserve by sort of making his converts choose uh, Zoom names rather than English names for for their converted or Christianized self. So I think as a person and the personal transformation, the personal transformations that Mike Mafuza goes through, uh, they they represent a certain kind of naming and and the, the place of names in so creating almost someone's uh, persona, someone's psyche, and shaping their ideas. I'm not sure if you want. To you want me to talk about the much 
more extensive, I guess, discussion of of um, names as he uses them really to think about Zulu history. Well, I think that would be a really interesting discussion, but we'll let the listeners pick up the book and, and read all those uh, wonderful insights uh, on their own, if, if that's okay. So, um, But I, I was struck by your uh, point about names and naming, and it's parallel with uh, Manning Marable's uh, new biography of Malcolm X. And um, unfortunately, Manning Marable passed away just a few days before the book was released. Mm, I, mean, I saw the um, obituaries, I read a little bit of the obituaries, yeah. And, and Manning Marable, of course, did his PhD on John Dube, the yeah. uh, first president of the ANC and friend of Maria Mafuse. Um, but there's, in the introduction, Marable says, um, you know, that, that Malcolm X had layers of personality and that uh, these were expressed as a series of different names. And he talks about, you know, as he was born Malcolm Little and then became, right, uh, um, uh, uh, Jack Carlton, Detroit Red, um, uh, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, and then of course Malcolm X, and that he says, and I quote, no single personality ever captured him fully. In this sense, his narrative is a brilliant series of reinventions, Malcolm X being just the best known. And, and I thought there was a nice parallel with what you just said about Maria Mafuse. Um, but uh, Peter, I'm going to turn it over to Peter because he has a question for you. You've written a, an intellectual history, and we lack much detail of Fouzé's life, of course. And uh, from um, Colenso's Bishop's Mission, he moves to, to journalism. But along the way, he's involved from time to time in, in, in uh, polite forms of uh, petitioning or protest in, in the trial of Langali Baleli and um, defence of Zulu monarchy. Um, one interesting episode in these um, uh, in these years is his time on Saint Helena, a, a much neglected area of history. And um, here he was involved in in his relations with the Zulu monarchy. And Peter might come back on this, but but what what can we say about the significance of these Saint Helena years? Um, travels across the ocean. He he tries to mediate. He's He's involved in these uh, epistolary uh, networks, these letter-writing networks that uh, Vicky Kamalo has written about and which you comment on. And clearly, in this period of the, of the late 19th century, um, letter-writing and then the press are the key uh, media of communication, uh, of interaction. So what can we, how can you assess this uh, St. Helena interlude and also his letter-writing? The St. Helena years for Fuse are the moment of his Pan-Africanist uh, that he begins to formulate ideas of Pan-Africanist thought. And part of the reason that that happens is because uh, St. Helena is one of those islands that was used by the British Empire almost to control and discourage uh, uh, slave trading after the end of the slave trade because what used to happen as you may know is that whenever a, sh a ship was detained I think is that the term I'm, sure, I'm not sure what the naval term is whenever a, a, a slave boat was intercepted they would basically drive it or 
guided to St. Helena and um, uh, offload the cargo of slaves. And so St. Helena became or emerged almost as a community of people who traced their descent to the end of, of uh, the slave trade. So for Maria Bafuse, those two stories almost come together, the story of the slave trade and how it has shaped not just uh, uh, the African continent, but also the African diaspora, and also the very specific then space of St. Helena. So he's thinking about both things. He's thinking about what does St. Helena mean, but also he's thinking about the connection between St. Helena, South Africa, and the greater black diaspora, the sort of his idea of the dispersal of the black people. And so meeting people in St. Helena and having these conversations with them about where they had come from, what they remembered from their traditions, where they, with, from the parts of the continent where they had come from, so sparks this idea in, in his mind that really black people are the same all over the world, that there is this unifying uh, history of black people, and in part it's the history of enslavement and, and dispersal. So the, the uh, pan-Africanist ideas that he forms are not necessarily just about uh, possession of, of, of the African continent. So he's not arguing that somehow uh, the African continent necessarily just belongs to black people. That's not his conclusion. I think what he uh, comes to is this idea of a unity that transcends even the question of land, because he's talking about uh, Africans who were dispersed to uh, the Americas, for example. So I would say the, pan, the pan-Africanist ideas that come out of uh, his St. Helena surgeon so for, from about 1896 onwards, um, form the foundation even of, his inter, of the intellectual contribution he makes in the early 20th century. I don't think you can understand his obsession with history, his desire to write books without really understanding what happened on St. Helena and this sort of formation of this idea that black people were basically united by history. So I think that's the substantive issue. That's a substantive uh, body of work that comes out of his St. Helena years. But in terms of relationships, I think if you want to understand why Fuse writes so much about the Zulu royal family, you also have to understand that St. Helena created for him the relationship with the Zulu monarchy. I mean, he had always understood or had, I guess, gained access to the monarchy via the Colenso family. So first John William Colenso, and then after his death, uh, the daughter Harriet Colenso. But when he's on St. Helena, he is now directly in contact with uh, the Zulu uh, prince and his uncles. And so I think those familial and affective relationships that come out of that influence his interpretation of Zulu history because now he has this personal uh, relationship. And that's why in so many places he sounds like a monarchist, like all that he wanted to do was preserve uh, the Zulu king and, and, and the stature of the Zulu king. And he didn't care that much in some ways about Zulu commoners. But I think it would be too simplified to just say that was the antagonism between sort of Zulu monarchy um, and Zulu uh, commoners, because I think Mike Mafuse idealizes the Zulu monarchy. He does, I think. And it, it also comes out in his criticism of uh, the Zulu aristocracy, uh, for lack of a better word, or, or nobility. Can you, can you say something about 
uh, his particular view of uh, not the Zulu royal family, but but of other um, noblemen. Yeah, I, he, I think, be, because he witnessed um, the destruction of the Zulu kingdom from sort of 1879 onwards, he took the view that that destruction could not have taken place without the cooperation of the Zulu nobility. And his understanding of this cooperation is that some members of the Zulu monarchy, or Zulu aristocracy, sorry, were made to believe that if they destroyed the figurehead of the king, that they would then be made kings. So it's really this sort of uh, jealousy, this idea that jealousy uh, prompted them to do this, the idea that they they were themselves uh, desiring to, to acquire the titles and the stature that comes with being a member or being a monarch, a Zulu monarch. And so you, you when you read his um, very almost acidic uh, readings of, of, of people like Zibebu and their involvement with colonial officials, you can see that what he was really most angered by was just this sort of backdoor dealing, the fact that in some ways colonialism was allowed to destroy uh, um, the Zulu or the idealized Zulu state using the ambitions and the aspirations of some members of the Zulu nobility. And the way he tells the story as well, it's almost as if uh, he sort of almost shows the pettiness of it all. I think one of the things that comes out of Fuzi is the sense when he almost describes these nobles as being petty, that they really fought over nothing. So they gave up a higher, I mean, it's, it's a very um, um, cutting uh, um, a criticism because he almost says you gave up this higher ideal, this more uh, noble idea in favor of just pettiness. What have you gained from being so petty? So it's a very uh, almost pathetic, like heartbreaking um, assessment because you can feel that his, his sympathies are with this idea that the Zulu monarchy represented all the highest and most noble ideas to come out of Zulu culture, and it was destroyed by just pettiness. Well, towards the end of Fuse's life, he pulls all these writings uh, and journalism together in this remarkable book, which he writes in this is Zulu, and which is um, published eventually in 1922, and it's uh, not translated into English until the 70s, and you make the point that it it's now become more well-known in translation. And, of course, there's a lot of... You raise a lot of interesting questions about what is lost in that translation. But I'd like to ask about Fuse the historian. Um, mm -hmm. What sort of historian was he or could he have been given the repressive colonial conditions of the day? And, of course, it was very difficult because there were no black universities, there were no black professors, there were really very few black publishers and so the ability of a black writer to, um, to stake out a, a career as a historian was almost impossible given this colonial-like uh, straitjacket. But uh, nevertheless, he, he, he pulls it off. He, he manages to write this remarkable history. So what sort of history was it and what sort of historian was he? I think you, in the kinds of a list that you gave of all the things that were lacking in his uh, social and intellectual environment, you almost sort of point to some of the things that 
in some ways, I think he was trying to establish. So he was basically saying to his contemporaries, we don't have our own universities. We don't have a state that supports our educational aspirations. Therefore, let's turn the newspaper into that source of knowledge. Let's turn the newspaper into this um, almost a digest of, of our ideas and our thoughts. And so in some ways you see the newspaper being used as a substitute for exactly all the things that are lacking for black intellectuals or aspiring uh, black intellectuals. But beyond that, I think beyond the question of what is lacking or what was lacking at the time, what couldn't happen for black intellectuals, I think Fuse represents something that's also positive about what was possible for uh, writing history and also what was possible for the Zulu language. Uh, because what he represents is really this idea that at that time people had a sense that it was possible to write newspapers in the Zulu language and to, to produce large quantities of text in the Zulu language, that it was possible for these texts to be circulated and read and commented upon, and that it was possible to establish this community even though there were all these great distances, cultural distances, but also physical distances that existed between the readers of these newspapers. So I think there is a tension in Fuse between the limitations that were imposed by the colonial uh, context and the colonial situation, but also this possibility, this sense of potential that could be realized. And I think his histories are in part about that, when he looks to the past and sort of says, these are the things that have gone right and wrong in our past, but what is our potential? Who do we want to be in the future? And he's real sort of underlying message or the underlying message of the histories that he narrates is that there's the sort of uh, future for black nationalism. Because I think one could call Maki Mafuza black nationalist because he really thought black people should aim for nationhood. And he understood nationhood to be quite a modern idea. that Black people should aim for nationhood, but that nationhood should be in part inspired by an understanding of where they have been, their, their history. And so I think there is this tension, if you want to think of Fuse as a historian, there is this tension between history as histories or history for history's sake, that you simply need to know where you come from, and then this idea of history as sort of instrumental in the creation of, of nationhood. And I think there's never really a resolution. At least I try not to... Uh, resolve it in the book. I didn't try to, to sort of say at the end, okay, this is the kind of historian he is. I left that tension there because I think that's who he was. I think it doesn't make sense to sort of try and choose one or the other kind of history. So can the book be considered an act of resistance uh, given what you have said? And, and if so, what kind of resistance uh, is it? It is a kind of resistance because one, he is resisting the sort of in the dominance of the English language. I would say that Maki Mahfouz was very aware that the English language was much more attractive to his contemporaries than the Zulu language. And so he's resisting that that sort of swing towards English as, as the language of, of black thought or African intellectual 
thought. And the second kind of resistance that I think uh, Fuse's work represents is a resistance against the idea that nothing original can come out of, of the color community. I mean, there was a sense in which uh, one of the basic insults that used to be hurled at, at the color was that they were sort of half-baked Englishmen. So the idea was they were not original, they were just a copy of something else and a bad copy of something else. So that resistance against this idea that everything that they were was largely derivative. I think there is a sense in which you could um, describe Matumafuz as resisting that, resisting the stereotype of the Amakonwa, as sort of not fully formed modern people. I think he wanted to demonstrate in his writing that he understood what modernity was about. And I think when it comes to the question of political resistance, it becomes more difficult to say what Martin Mapuza was, was resisting, because as uh, Peter, Lim, uh, Peter Lim pointed out earlier on, his participation in that sort of petition culture, this, this sort of constant writing to the colonial state, suggests that he had already given up the idea of a more uh, aggressive, confrontational, militaristic uh, resistance to colonialism. So depending on your own particular view of history, you could say, oh, but he just represents a very conservative uh, African stance, that Africans were already militarily defeated, and so the only thing they could do was resist sort of intellectually, rhetorically. But if you read it, I think, from the context of his entire engagement, like his lifelong engagement with history, with writing, then you see that it is an important resist form of resistance. This idea that you resist culturally, you resist being defined culturally by somebody else. And I think that I would concentrate on all those kinds of resistances rather than, say, focusing on the lack of something more revolutionary, because I think that tends to be the temptation, which is to, re to try and read a revolutionary resistance, which I think is much more complicated in the case of Fuse. Well, it's a fascinating life. Uh, it's a remarkable book. Uh, it's, it's a life full of significance, not just for the past, but for the present of South Africa and Africa. So thank you very much, Shonipa McKenna, for talking to Africa past and present. Thank you very much, and uh, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>